Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. What Paul had to say to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. It says this. For my part, brothers and sisters, I, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. I, I spoke to you as babies in Christ. I, I gave you milk to drink, not, not solid food, since, since you weren't even ready for it. In, in fact, you're still not ready for it because you're still worldly. What an indictment. And, and here's what Paul says. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like Mere humans, for, for whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They, they are servants through whom you believe, and each has the role the Lord has given. Here's what Paul says, I, I planted, I planted the church, but then Apollos came along and he watered. But God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is actually anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, and you, church, you are God's field. You're God's building. Here's what Paul says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another comes after me and builds on it but each one is to be careful how he builds on it for no one can lay a foundation other than what has already been laid down and that foundation is Jesus Christ if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver costly stones wood hay or straw each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it let me pause real quick here's what that means How you work matters to God. There will come a day where you would think, I'm going to heaven, and you will go to heaven if you are in Christ. But you're going to go to heaven, and God is going to look back over your life and judge all of the work that you did. So if you did a shabby job at your work, God is going to judge that job. If you came to church and you gave a half-hearted effort, God is going to judge that. So how we do everything matters because how you do anything is how you do everything. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But, but whoo, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That means you're going to make it in by the skin of your teeth. And somebody was like, that's all right with me as long as I get in, Pastor. Jesus help you. Verse 16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. That is what you are. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for for your word, God. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you, Father, that we get this chance to come together as a body of believers, God, to, to worship you together. Today, I pray, God, that Christ Jesus would be glorified today. I pray that he would be lifted up today, God. I pray that his name would be made famous among us today. And Lord, I pray that you would compel our hearts, God, to love you more, to grow in our relationship with you, Father. I pray that that your commands don't look like demands to us any longer, but that it looks like delight. And so, Father, I pray that Holy Spirit would move among us today as we study together. I pray Today, Father, that you would fill us up with your spirit, that we would grow in our faith today. And for the one who is maybe among us and not saved, not a relationship with Jesus, Father, we pray that you would draw them to you today. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God. We pray today that we would not just observe a sermon, not just listen to a sermon, but that we would participate in what the Lord is saying amongst the saints today. We thank you for it, and we pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. You may be seated from the sermon series possible my sermon title is this it is possible together it is possible 
together. What, what Paul is actually calling the church to in this particular text and in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, it, he's calling them to unity. It, it, it is at the least what we all should strive for through the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it is what we all as believers should strive for. We should strive to be one because that is what God has called us to. I don't want us to have a casual relationship or a neutral perspective on this idea of unity because for the church, for Christians, let me tell you this today, unity is not optional. Unity is not optional. And here's why. Unity is what God loves. And we as a people should love what God loves. We should love getting along with one another. We should Love being at peace with one another. Unity is what God loves, but the opposite of that is unity is what Satan hates. Unity is what Satan hates. Satan hates when a church is together because he knows what we can do when we are united as one, when we are working together, when we are at peace with one another, when we are extending grace to one another, when we are forgiving one another. Satan hates unity. And I just put it to you like this. Whose side would you rather be on? Would you rather love what God loves or would you rather hate what Satan hates? I don't want to I want to feel nothing about the way Satan feels about anything. I want to be on God side. So if, if Satan hates unity, then that should tell me that I should desire to love unity. I shouldn't be neutral towards it, towards it. I should pursue it. I should go after it. I should test my heart often to make sure that I'm walking in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I should make sure that I'm extending grace. I should make sure that I am living in a forgiving manner. As I'm receiving forgiveness, I should also desire to give forgiveness because for the believer and for for the church, unity is not optional. So much so, the practical implications is this. Hear me. Christian unity is the breeding ground for supernatural spiritual growth. Christian unity is the breeding ground for supernatural spiritual growth. We grow when we are united together. We grow when we're all on the same page. We grow when we can check each other and correct each other and encourage one another and disciple one another. It becomes the breeding ground where we can grow supernaturally. We can become more like Jesus and not just for the simple fact that we will grow for our own pleasure but for this reason this reason alone our growth brings glory to God let me say this to you let me stand back and give you a big picture view everything that we do as believers we do it in the way that we do it not because it's about us but because we want to bring glory to God you work the way you work, and I'm assuming that you work hard. I'm assuming that you show up to your job on time. I'm assuming that you don't leave early. I'm assuming that you do what you're supposed to do. I'm assuming that you love the way you're supposed to love, and you forgive the way you're supposed to forgive. I'm, I'm assuming that you do that, but we're not doing it to make much of ourselves. We're doing it so that we make much of Jesus. Everything about the Christian life points back to the glory of God. And so with that being said, we are encouraged in this text to evaluate how we are in relationship with one another in light of what Christ has done to bring us together. And, and so what is this that Christ has done? Christ has reconciled our relationship with God. That's great because we at one point were enemies of God. But Christ has now reconciled us back to God. But you know where I'm going with this. He didn't just reconcile us with God. He also reconciled us with each other. And so that means for us, God now calls us not to just love him, but a byproduct of us loving him is that we would also love our neighbor. And here is the interesting thing for the Christian. Who is, our, who is your neighbor? That's not a rhetorical question I'm, I'm, I'm really asking. Who is your neighbor? And you're like, I, I don't know. I want to say the wrong answer. For the Christian, your neighbor is everybody. Your neighbor is everybody. Christians are the only group of people whose neighbors transcends geographical location. 
Let me say that again. Christians are the only group of people whose neighbor transcends geographical location. Your neighbor is whoever you encounter. Your neighbor is not just the person whose house is next to yours or whose apartment's next to yours. Your neighbor is anyone that you meet at any time, including those people that you encounter at church. And so God is encouraging us through the text to ensure that we are not just right with him, but that we are right with each other. For as much as we can without losing our witness, God has called us to love and get along with those that it's not natural for us to get along with. He he calls us to serve those who seemingly may not deserve for us to serve them. That's what the power of the cross has done for us. That is what the foolishness of the cross has done. It has made apparent weakness and foolishness the actual wisdom of God. And last week we learned why this is possible. It's possible because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows us to do what we cannot do in our own natural power. The Holy Spirit will allow you to forgive somebody who naturally in your flesh, you say to yourself, I wish I would. But the Holy Spirit in you says, this is not what I have to do. This is what I get to do. Let me say this. Refresh your course. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. Last week I told you, go back and watch the message. Don't be a lazy Christian. Go back and watch it. If you weren't here, a lot of you weren't. Go back and watch it. The Holy Spirit is not something you catch. It's something you possess. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, whether you speak in tongues or not. That's a debate for later on in later weeks. You have the Holy Spirit. Whether you rolled on the floor in church at the altar at one point in your life or not, doesn't matter. You have the Holy Spirit. If you foamed at the mouth before, that doesn't mean you have the Holy Spirit or your neighbor doesn't because they didn't foam at their mouth. We all have the Holy Spirit. And so when you have the Holy Spirit, there's a way in which the Holy Spirit allows us to live under the power and control of the Spirit. We, we live in a way that pleases God according to his word, and we can do that because we have the Holy Spirit. And every Christian possesses the power to live in the way that God calls us to, not at some later point when you are more mature, but from the moment you become a Christian. Let me say this again. If you've been making excuses saying, I can't grow, I've just been saved for two years, The moment you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit. The the moment you were converted, you had the power of God living on the inside of you. And the life that God called you to, God has equipped you. God is living on the inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit. And last week we learned that Paul referred to the Corinthians as spiritual people. And they are spiritual people because they possess the Spirit of God. But here's what he said. He says, you have the spirit of God, but those in the world, they don't. They, they, they do not have the spirit of the world. You, you, you don't have the spirit of the world. You, you have the spirit that comes from God. And because of the spirit, they understood what has been freely given to them. He's talking about salvation by grace. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have this free gift of salvation through the faith, through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They have the free gift of salvation. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. I want to tell you this. If you are a person here for the first time, or you're an unbeliever. Salvation is not through works. It is by the grace of God. That means that it's not dependent on your good behavior. It's not dependent upon what you can do, but on what Christ has done for you. And the implications for that, it's not just how we interact with God, but how we also interact with one another. And this is the present problem in Corinth. And oftentimes it rears its ugly head in the church. There's division and there's disunity among the body of believers, and it's no small matter. A group of people in this super spiritually gifted church are undermining the gift that they've received because they are operating in division. They are operating in the spirit of disunity. Uh, Evangelist Dwight, Dwight Moody said this about the spirit of God. He says, I have never known the spirit of God to work where the people, where the Lord's people were divided. I've never known the spirit to do what the spirit can do where the people of God are divided. 
And so this is what Paul gets through in the first four verses. Here's what he says. Look at verses one through four if you've got a Bible. It says this. Paul says, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you're still worldly, for there's envy and strife among you. Are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For, for whenever someone says, I belong to Apollos or, or, or I belong to Paul, are you not acting like mere humans? And here's, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, yes, I spoke to you and I gave you the good news, but what I spoke to you has not completely taken hold of you because you're still responding in a manner that is not commensurate with the, with the message that you receive, the way you're acting is not aligning with what you say you profess to believe you are spiritual and you have the spirit of God but you act like you don't this is what he said you you have the Holy Spirit but part of you act like you don't have him and and so he said I spoke to you as grown-ups I gave you the real My, my message was thorough my message was authentic my message was real I told you about the crucified and resurrected Messiah and how he has come to save sinners I told you what Christ did on the cross that that he did not just reconcile your relationship with God but he reconciled your relationship with your neighbor I gave you the good news that to borrow from Ephesians now in Christ Jesus you are who are far away at one point have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the wall of hostility I gave you milk not solid food meaning that the milk that I gave you was solid food but it was only milk because you didn't respond like someone who ate solid food you you, it was solid food but you made it milk meaning the, the message does not align with what you really wanted I gave you solid food, but you wanted milk. You you don't want a message about the cross and humility and and putting others before yourself. You wanted a message to suit your own pleasures and your own selfish ambition. So I gave you meat and potatoes. I gave you a heavy word, but you didn't want it. You turned it into milk because it wasn't palatable to you. you. You preferred a message, not about the cross, but how you can get to the next level. You, you, you didn't want a, a, a message first about your relationship with the Lord and getting along with others. You wanted a, re, a message about a relationship status. You, you didn't want the simplicity of the cross that caused you to die to self. You wanted something deeper about how you can get to the next level. So, so I gave you solid food, but you weren't ready for it. He says, you still aren't ready because you're still worldly. That's crazy to me. And I want to just pause here with this idea of worldliness because you've heard it before. If you grew up in church, you, you've heard this terminology of worldly or carnal before. If you, if you have a grandmother that went to church, you've heard her say they're so worldly. Everybody's heard this terminology. They're so worldly. Ooh, look at her. She is so worldly. Look at them just out there in the world. And typically we think about this stuff and here's what we think. We think. Worldly is what? A certain type of music? A certain type of TV that people watch? A worldly person is a person who gets drunk or gets high? A worldly worldly person dresses in a certain type of manner? A worldly person goes to worldly places, i.e. the club? Y'all are like, oh, Jesus. (laughs) And all those things can be true. But, but we stop way short as Christians when we just leave it to those things. We, we, we actually reveal our own immaturity because the word worldly there in its original term really describes the person that is just simply centered on themselves. It describes a self-centered, self-indulgent, arrogant, arrogantly self-sufficient person, a person who makes things about them no matter what it is. Everything ends with them. Everything points back to them. And and their needs, and their wants, and their desires. And so when the, when the text says that a person is worldly, it is simply talking about somebody that is self-centered. And, and it can also be something in the church that we minimize and downplay, something that we attach little importance to, but something that the Bible highlights as so carnal and so worldly and something that points to our immaturity. Here's what Paul says, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly? 
and behaving like mere humans. Notice he doesn't mention the club. Notice he doesn't mention smoking and drinking. Notice he doesn't mention sexual immorality in this context. Notice he doesn't mention that. He says there's envy and strife and aren't you acting worldly? Do we often, do we, have you ever associated worldliness with envy? Have you ever associated your jealousy with being worldly? Have you ever associated your, your you just want to, you just want to go off on somebody today as being worldly? But this is how the text defines it. He says, are you not envy? Dealing with envy and strife? Envy, you know what envy is? Some say jealousy, but envy, it is when you experience pain at the sight of someone's happiness or success. When you see it and you feel some in your body. Oh, Jesus. I can't believe they got that new car. Oh, God. Look at that haircut he's got. Oh, I can't stand that boy. Look at him. I wish my barber could do my edge like that. Oh, my. man. Look at what they have. And it hurts your feelings. It hurts you internally. Your chest tightens up. When you see someone else's success, you might be dealing with envy. If you see something good happening to someone and you personally wish it was that way for you, so therefore you can't celebrate what happens to them, you might be suffering with envy. I can't even, I can't even, I can't even celebrate with you because I'm mad that that happened to you and it didn't happen to me. I was in line before you were. I can't believe, I can't believe that. I, I wanted a promotion to you. How do you get a promotion before me? I work harder than you. What? Man, you know how long I've been wanting a new car. Here you come showing up with your, your new car. I can't even. Mm. That new shirt. You think, man, you think you look good, don't you? <laughs> little, little ugly shirt. Little ugly shirt that I wish I had. Can't stand you. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be materialistic. Sometimes you can see somebody else so at peace and so content in their life that it just pains you that they just move the way they move. You might have more money. You might have a better job. You might have a better whatever. But it's something about this person who doesn't even have what you have that pains you because they live in peace and you can't get no peace to save your life. So it's not always about materialistic, and it's not always the little man being envious of the big man. Sometimes the person further ahead is envious of the person behind them. And it pains, some, it pains people to see you go through things that you've gone through and you still be at peace with God. How do you keep showing up and still serving in spite of what you go through? You come in the morning to church, and you praising the Lord, and you singing the songs, and you lifting your hands, and I'm just looking at you. I'm going through hell, and I want in my life, and I can't stand to see you worship. Because you don't deserve that peace. I do. And envy, the pain, at, at the sight at someone else's success or happiness, it doesn't just stay there in your mind and in your heart. It, it is the breeding ground for further wickedness and further sin because eventually what is going on internally, you got to do something with that. And this is where strife comes into play. And envy per, an envious person always goes to strife because they got to act it out on somebody. Why are they mad at me? Why are they always going off on me? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them. And you don't even know. You're trying to make it make sense. And you're trying to pray and fast and wonder why they act this way towards you. It ain't got nothing to do with you. Nothing. But when you are envy and you are envious, sometimes... You got to do something about what you feel and then strife enters into play because strife, all strife is, is a person, person who seeks their own self-interest. Even the success in life of another person has to be about them. Even if something is good for the whole, the person who has strife says, even though that's working for everybody, because I'm not doing what I want to do in that program, I can't get with it and I can't celebrate it, even if it's working. Because everything is about how you can come up 
and how you can be seen. And the person that is constantly operating out of these two things tends to bring the whole down. You've experienced this before. Everybody at work is happy and in a good mood. And here comes the dude with the Charlie Brown music. It's like, what is happening right now? It happens in church. We praise in the Lord, and then Sappy Sally comes through. It's like, why? You? We can't worship because we got to look at you. And this is what he's addressing here. Because oftentimes we have to stop and deal with the party pooper. It seems harmless, but let me tell you something. Your envy and your strife ain't harmless. When it comes to the body of Christ, your envy and your strife is not personal. It's corporate. Because what affects one affects the whole. I want to give you this, this, this beautiful math equation I came up with. Envy plus strife equals disunity. You know what else disunity does? Disunity disrupts growth. If God has called us to grow, disunity disunity disrupts that. The number one thing that it does, it disrupts your own personal growth. You can't grow the way God calls you to grow if you got this envy in your heart. Because your eyes ain't on Jesus, your eyes is on who you envious, envious about. Secondly, it becomes a disruptor to the growth of the body, of everyone else. And it is no small issue. Jealousy and envy is no small issue. Strife amongst the brothers and sisters in the faith, it is no small issue. Let me tell you this, it is not an issue, it's sin. It is, it is worldly, it is carnal, it is offensive to God. It is an indi- a person who is always envious and always dealing in strife. They are not walking in the spirit that God gives us. That they are a person that is walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. You don't believe me, do you? Let me show you Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. You've seen this before, but I want you to see that that envy falls in a long list of immoral things. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. You got the common thing, sexual immorality, what everybody runs to, moral impurity, promiscuity, which everybody runs to, idolatry, sorcery, hate. There's strife, you see it? Then there's jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. Verse 21, envy. Right along with drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice these things, strife and envy is in this list. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Does that seem like some small issue to you? Because it's not a small issue to God. You're up there being hypercritical of the person that's drunk. But you're jealous. And in your jealous self-righteousness, you are just as bad as the person who's drunk. But the good news is that we have the Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another because we have the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you this. This is for free. I'm not going to charge you for this. There is no spiritual blessing that someone else has that you in Christ don't have access to. Whatever God has given them, spiritually speaking, you have access to it too. So they have peace. You can have it too. If somebody's just brimming with love every time you see them, they're not crazy. Maybe they have the spirit of God. Guess what? You have that too. Oh, my life is just in chaos and disorder, and my life is just just crazy. You don't know my life. You can have peace. You have peace because you have the Spirit of God 
But when we deal with envy and strife, these are things that we have to allow the Spirit of God to work up out of our hearts. Let me tell you this. If you deal with jealousy, if you deal with envy, if you love being at odds with somebody and having strife, let me tell you something. God doesn't want you to be that way. By the power of the Spirit of God and in the name of Jesus, you can uproot that jealousy and envy out of your heart. You, can, you too can celebrate somebody else's success. You don't have to be hypercritical of everybody that you meet. If you find yourself always being hypercritical over people, always judging what somebody else is doing and how somebody else is doing something, maybe it's not them, it's you. I don't like the way you do this. I don't like the way you talk on the phone. I don't like the way you type on the keyboard. I want to, shut up. Let me do my keystrokes the way I want to do my keystrokes. If I want to hold myself on with two hands, let me do that. But, 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 but you, if you find yourself just always criticizing someone else and you, it, it's not natural for, you, natural for you to say something good about somebody else, that is a problem. We are called to encourage one another, not constantly criticize one another. That's not saying you don't be honest. But if you're always looking to find something, let me do you a favor. Buy a mirror. In Jesus' name. But here's their division. I belong to Paulos. I belong to Paul. And so they were breaking off into factions based on who they felt closest to, who they thought did the most work that applied to their own walk with Jesus. Well, well, well Paul planted, so I'm on team. I'm team Paul because he actually planted the church. And others were like, no, I'm team Apollos. You heard Apollos preach, man, dude is super eloquent. Man, every, everybody loves his teaching. So they're breaking off into factions. This is what was happening to them. And the reason why is it wasn't because they were such a fan of Paul or such a fan of Apollos. In their culture, the way to come up was to get next to somebody who had influence. It was, it was a way to get next. So you would get next to them so that they can mention your name and then you can be as popular as they are. And so, so, so th th this is nothing. What they were doing was trying to get, I'm, I'm closest to Paul. I'm, I'm cool with Paul because that, that would make them more popular. All we see in this text is just an ancient form of clout chasing. And if they, if they, if they had social media back then, everything would be about who's following me back. Let, let me keep Liking everything from this famous person, let me keep retweeting them. Hopefully they'll see me at some point and then they'll follow me back and it'll make me look more popular. Who, who's liking my posts? Who, who's reposting my stuff? Let, let me keep doing this so that I can be like them too, so I can be popular too. But, but it's not just in the world. There's also clout chasing in the church. So let me just, this person, so, so that I can use them to launch my ministry platform. They're making celebrities in the church. And all we're doing is dividing the church. I'm team Paul because one day maybe Paul will let me X, Y, Z. No, I'm team Apollos because if I get next to Apollos, then maybe... Apollos will let me X, Y, Z. But it's not about Apollos, it's not about Paul, it's about them. Because that's what self-centered people do. They make everything about them. They were making celebrities. And look at how Paul identifies himself. And Apollos, he speaks right against it. Look at verses 5 through 9. What does Paul say? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe and each has a role the Lord has given Here's what Paul says. I planted Apollo's water, but God is the one that gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is actually anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one receives his own reward according to his own labor. For we are just God's co-workers, but you are God's field, God's building. Here's what he's saying. If you don't understand any of that, he's saying we're not celebrities, we're servants. And if you come up in the kingdom, and maybe you will, always remember, if you're in the kingdom of God, you're never a celebrity, but you're always a servant. Never a celebrity, always a servant. Every 
ministry leader, every ministry volunteer is a servant. If you pastor or if you greet, servant. If you greet at the door, if you're on the welcome team, if you work in hospitality or you work in children's ministry, guess what you are? Servant. You are just a servant, and, and this is what they are. Paul says, I planted the church, I introduced you to the gospel, but then Apollos came and he watered the seed that I sowed. But ultimately, it is God that calls you guys to grow. It is what God is doing because somebody can plant seeds all day long to their blue in the face, but if somebody don't come behind the water of those seeds, it means nothing. And somebody can water dirt, just aimless dirt, but if ain't no seed in the ground, nothing's going to grow. And either Paul or Apollos, Paul didn't make seed, Paul was given seed. And Apollos didn't make water, Apollos was given water. And where did he get the seed? And where did he get the water? They both got it from God. So guess who gets the glory? God. Your growth is not about who you got saved under or who baptized you. Your growth brings glory to God and God alone. He says, so neither the planter or the water or anything. Not saying that what they do doesn't matter, but it just says to you as a believer, their status is not something for you to hang your hat on. They are just servants. He's not, he's not just downplaying or minimizing that what they do um, um, just on purpose, saying it doesn't matter. But what he's trying to get them to do is say, hey, you got to look in the wrong, you got to look in the other direction. Don't look at us. Look at God. Look at God. Every ministry leader, your work, your ultimate work is to point people back to Jesus. If you work in children's ministry... You love and teach those kids in such a way that they look past you and see Jesus. If you are part of the welcome team and you hug and greet people at the door, come with your best attitude. Give the best hug and the best smile that you can afford. Come with the best attitude. Get your, get your face together before you come to church. Get it together. Get it together in Jesus' name. Say, Holy Spirit, get, get, it, get this face. Get this face, Holy Spirit. Make it do what it do. But you greet people and love people and show hospitality in such a way that they look past you and see Jesus. We sing songs in such a way we want to sing with so much passion and sing about Jesus and about the cross and about about the crucifixion and the resurrection in such a way that they don't even see who's singing. All they see is the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is what we're here for. So everything that we do matters. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this exact verse in the Message Bible. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, planning and watering are menial servant jobs at minimum wages. What makes them worth doing is the God we are serving. And here's what the church needed to understand, that Paul and Apollos were not working against each other. They were working together. Different giftings, different roles, but they are working in tandem. Paul and Apollos were not competing. They were complementing. Not competing. They were complementing. Now, the one who waters and the one who plants are one. They both belong to God, and if they have any success whatsoever, it is entirely dependent upon God because ultimately their reward will come from God. Here's what you need to know. Yes, we should give each other kudos and recognition and pat each other on the back, but the most important commendation you could ever receive in the kingdom is from God. He says we're God's co-workers. That's not, when he says we're God, God's co-workers, he's not talking about like, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. That's dumb. First of all, you can't fly a plane, so he's not your co-pilot. It's number one. Number two, Jesus don't need you in the cockpit with him. He's got it. You just sat down somewhere and ride. Paul assures them that he's just a servant, but he's a servant that is building something that God has already started to build. 
and the work that he himself is doing is credited to God. Look at what he says in verses 10 through 14. Let's look at 10 through 15. Let's look at this. Here's what, here's what he says. You might think I'm like the best church planner that ever lived, is what Paul is saying. But look what he says in verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, not because I'm good, but because God has graced me with it. If you have a skill set to do anything, it's not because you're good. It's because of God's grace. And another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. We didn't sing that for no reason this morning. That actually means something. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And here's what Paul is saying. I'm a bit of an architect engineer, and I've started this building project. And what is the most important thing that must be established before you build any foundation? Before you build any building, a foundation, right. I answered the question in, in the statement. The foundation is the most important thing. Because if you get the foundation wrong, it doesn't matter what you build with. The foundation is the most important thing. Everyone knows that before you start building, there is a blueprint that is laid out and there's a design. But, but at the bottom of everything, there is a foundation. And a foundation is then built upon, but it is established first. And here's the thing about a building project. One person doesn't just build a whole, a whole building. It takes multiple workers with different skill sets. If you watch any of the home shows, if you watch Chip and Joanna like we do before we go to bed, if you watch Chip and Joanna, you know that they're not always the ones just tearing down walls. They're not putting, up, putting in carpets. When, when the house is done, they, they hire other people to come in and bring in the furniture. Someone else is doing the kitchen. Someone else is doing the bathroom. Someone else is doing the living room. But, but they are di directing people. They play their part, but they're not doing it alone. The same thing in the kingdom of God. The pastor is not the only one building. But we all build on top of the foundation. Because if the foundation is not a stable building, it won't last long. And Paul says that for the church and for the believer, we have a foundation that's already been laid. In verse 11, he says, for no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. And I think what he's doing is he's pulling on the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Look at what Isaiah said about, about this, this, this foundation. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. We sang that again this morning. A sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And when when Isaiah said this, here's what he was doing. He was saying, this is a call and invitation to put your trust in the cornerstone, in the sure foundation, to build upon that which already has been established, to build upon that which has already been tested. You can rest on it. You can be at peace with it. You can be secure in it. It is a sure foundation. And for us, that foundation is Jesus. He is the sure foundation that we can build our lives on. And here's what you need to know about a foundation. Every day, you and I walk into buildings and we never ask a question about the foundation. When's the last time you were in an office building, you were in a high rise or a skyscraper and you asked before you entered the building, how secure is your foundation? You literally just walked in there. You know what that's called? That's called faith. You didn't see the foundation, but you just trusted that it was already there. And this is what God is inviting us to. He's saying the foundation has been laid. And you may not see it with your natural eyes, but you can see it by faith. And this foundation is secure. You can build your life on it. You can build your marriage on it. You can build a church on it. You can build a family on it because it will be unmovable and unshakable. You can build on this. This solid foundation, and the foundation is Jesus. And this is what he's saying to them. We never build a church on a personality. We build the church on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. We never build a church on a personality. We build it on the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ.
I want to read one more thing to you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. You know what is a foundation that is not sure? One filled with envy and strife. That is a very insecure foundation because it's based on your insecurities. So what he's saying eventually is that what we build with matters. And if we're going to build anything, we've got to start with Jesus. He says you build with, with gold, with silver, with costly stones, or with hay or wood, with straw. Those are six things you can build with. The first three, costly stones, gold. Uh, what's the other thing? He says gold and, and, and silver. Then he says hay, straw, and wood. You know what the difference is? Those first three things, you can set a fire to them, and the building don't catch on fire. But set a fire to some straw, to some hay, to some wood. It is going to combust. But what he's saying is build on the sure thing. Build on the gold, the silver, the costly stones. Build on the person of Jesus. Build on the gospel. Build on the character of Christ. For for the quality of what we build on matters to God because there will come a point, it says, for the day your work will become obvious for all to see. We as believers will one day stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And no, we will not be judged for our sins. Why? Because Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. But we will be judged by the work that we did. How we work matters. But if how we work matters, how we work Together matters even more. But you can't build something on on envy and strife. You can't build on jealousy. That doesn't work. You You can't build on that. Because one day God is going to judge how we built what he gave us. The time, the talent, the treasures that he gave us. God is going to hold us accountable for what we did with it. And you think that... I just do enough to get by because you read the verse that says that although what you do may be burned, you'll survive by fire. Let me say something about this. Because I've heard people, I just, I just want to get in. If you say I just want to get in, I kind of question your salvation to begin with. Because when you know what Jesus has done for you, when you know the price that has been paid, There's no way you can respond with apathy. There's no way you can respond indifferent or neutral. You got to respond with passion to his passion. There's something when Jesus saves a person and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what we do matters. And one day we'll be judged. Can you imagine? Can you imagine one day you get to heaven and you stand before God, and I don't know how it's going to happen, so just take this grain of salt. And there's like a video playing, and you, clock, you clocking out at 4.30. You get out at 5. <laughs> and Jesus is just looking at, he's looking at, and you're looking at Jesus like this. And you may say, you know what, I'm going to do just enough to get by. Guess what? Nobody will notice. The problem with that is nothing escapes the eye of God. He sees right through what you've done to the motivation behind what you've done. And that's where we miss it. Because we think he just sees the natural, but God looks right at our heart. So what we build with matters. The last thing is he issues the most severe warning in the New Testament, the most severe warning, because it gives a warning to those who would try to tear down a church. And I know what you're thinking. Nobody would try to tear down a church. Yes, they would. 
they, actually, they absolutely, people will do that. But if you're trying to tear down a church or tear down the people of God, you're not tearing down the people of God. You're tearing down God's temple. So how we operate in the body of Christ matters. You can't go, it can't be you versus everybody. That sounds great in a tweet or on a post, but not in reality. Because we're called to be the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not to say that we all, we all got to go to lunch together and go hang out together every day of our lives. It's not to say that, but it is to say that we can forgive and we can love and we can move on. But everything that God calls us to is possible. But it's possible when we do it together. You need other people. And we can build together, but the first thing that we build is we build on the foundation that has already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus. I'll say this and I'm done. Anything that you're trying to build right now, if Jesus is not at the foundation, let me save you some time and some effort and some energy. It is going to fail. If there's a career that you're trying to build and you are at the foundation, it is going to crumble to pieces. If there's a relationship that you're trying to build and Jesus is not at the foundation, meaning both of y'all feet ain't planted firmly on the solid rock that is Christ Jesus, it is going to fail. I don't mean to offend you. I don't mean to make you upset. But if it's not rooted and grounded in Jesus, it is not going to work. So, wise pastor once said, only what we do for Christ is going to last. Realest words he ever spoke. But we must do it together. And this is what God has called us to. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.